The old pilot's plain tales. Little things. The Danish singer Oland isn't very well known outside of Denmark, but she sang a little pop song that could teach many a pilot a lesson or two, particularly an Alton 11 crew who were circling over the Everglades in 1972. Her song, Little Things, starts with the words Caught in the little things To distract from what? We are all wondering What will be there to protect us? Well, as a poem goes, it doesn't exactly scan, but another way to introduce this story would be to invoke the supernatural. As for those who believe in such things, parts of this particular L1011 carried with them a conduit to the spirits of the departed. Cabin crew claim to have seen apparitions of pilots on their aircraft who vanish before their eyes, leaving them so shaken that they have refused to fly. Now, I've known plenty of pilots who can have that effect, but none that can vanish so quickly, unless, of course, it's their turn to buy the beer. I certainly think I've given you enough clues, so let's just get on with the story. It is well known to many of us, as we have studied it in depth, learning the lessons and reminding ourselves of just how easy it is for an experienced and capable crew to lose track of what's important. In addition, as I work on the text for this tale, I note that it was on this very day, the 29th of December in 1972, that our story happened. Eastern Airlines was a major American operator that flew from 1926 until 1991 and was one of the big four domestic airlines created by the Spoils Conferences and was headed by the flying ace Eddie Rickenbacker. It became embroiled in labour disputes and high debts that strained the airline so much even the leadership of former astronaut Frank Borman couldn't rescue it. However, in the early 70s, things were still going well for them. The company was acquiring Lockheed L-1011 Tristars, aircraft that became known in the Caribbean as El Gran Dote, the huge one. Eastern called it the Whisper Liner. The company headquarters was in the Rockefeller Plaza in New York, and Eastern had just become the official airline of Walt Disney World. The L-1011 was the pride of the airline's fleet and boasted eight-foot ceilings, subtle cabin lighting, individual temperature controls, music headsets and living room comfort. Aircraft number 310 was one of a dozen to be delivered in 1972 and was one of the best. It carried very few faults in its tech log, and had only been flying for four months, one week and two days, when Captain Bob Loft took command. His second officer and engineer for the flight was Don Repo, an experienced 51-year-old with nearly 16,000 hours. He had gone to bed early to shake off a cold. Joining them on the flight deck was First Officer Bert Stockstill, at 39, he was a former Air Force pilot who had also slept well before spending a couple of hours working on a light aircraft he was building prior to heading for work. 
Captain Loft himself was a veteran pilot, who at 55 ranked the 50th most senior pilot in the company. He had been with Eastern for 32 years and had nearly 30,000 hours of flying experience. The aircraft flew into JFK with only a couple of minor snags, both of which were sorted by the engineers, and the aircraft declared fit to continue on for the night flight to Miami as Eastern 401. There were 163 passengers on board and 13 crew members. Joining the crew on the flight deck was an off-duty technical officer who was returning to Miami after an assignment in New York. The takeoff went well, and the crew were operating in their usual professional manner. After all, Captain Loft had years of experience. First Officer Stockstill was flying the aircraft since it was his turn to take a leg. The aircraft's route wasn't unusual. They routed over the water following Jet Airway 79 from Wilmington west of Barracuda over West Palm Beach and then south to Miami. The weather was fine and warm in Florida, with a balmy 76 degrees Fahrenheit to greet the passengers. And Margaret was on stage at the Fontainebleau, and Woody Allen was on at the Deauville. The King Orange Parade was due to take place on New Year's Day, and many of the passengers were looking forward to a wonderful time celebrating the New Year of 1973. Ahead of them was a National Airlines DC-10, and they were following their lights south down to Miami. Stockstill dimmed the cockpit lights as they started their descent, and then they heard that the National DC-10 had a problem. They were having difficulties getting their gear down and were requesting an extended pattern so that they would have time to crank the undercarriage into place. The pilot called Miami to explain that they had a hydraulic problem, so he told them, might as well run out the fire trucks. With the emergency vehicles positioned on 9 right, Eastern 401 was lined up with 9 left. Their approach went perfectly normally until the engineer ran the checklist. Gear down? he asked. At this point, the pilots looked at the panel lights in front of the first officer that showed green lights for all the main gear, but not the nose wheel. But, asked Captain Loft, is the handle in? No nose gear, came the first officer's reply. Well, our tower, this is Eastern 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have our nose gear yet. The tower gave them a climb to 2,000 feet and turned them left, downwind, on a heading that would take them back to the approach path once they had sorted out the problem. Don, the engineer, asked if he should check the lights. This involved turning on the lights test system that illuminated every warning light on the flight deck. The cockpit lit up like a Christmas tree as they all came on. All, that is, except the nose gear light. With Bert, the first officer, still flying the aircraft, he asked the captain if he could jiggle the light. I can't get it from here, he replied. Don, the engineer, couldn't reach it either. Indeed, there were four of them on the flight deck that night, but only one could get at the light, and that was the guy flying the aircraft. Loft ordered the autopilot to be engaged so that Bert could have a go at the light. 
He managed to get it out and looked at it, but couldn't see if the filament was intact or not, and then he had a problem trying to get it back into the socket. Captain Loft offered some advice. Now, push the switch forward. No, oh, you got it sideways. Both pilots were absorbed with trying to get the bulb back in place. For a moment, the captain turned to address his engineer. Don, get down there and see if the damn nose wheel is down. As he did this, he gently bumped his control yoke. If only he had realized that his actions had just turned a metaphorical egg timer, and that his life had a mere four minutes left to run. The engineer left his station and went below to peer through a slot into the nose-wheel bay to see if the red indicator light was in place. It wasn't easy to see and he tried several times. Unbeknown to him, a half-second C-chord chime came from a speaker at his duty station on the flight deck. The C-chord would have told him that the aircraft had deviated 250 feet from the height set on the autopilot control panel. Had the pilots not been absorbed with a conversation about the light assembly and how to get the bulb back in, they might have heard it, but sadly, it went unnoticed. By now, the aircraft was well over the Everglades, an unpopulated area, as devoid of lights as an ocean. The pilots were messing about with a broken light bulb, and both engineers were now below, trying to establish the position of the nose wheel. A fact that the captain realised when he had told engineer Don Repo to get back down there and see if we are lined up with that red line. That's all we care, screwing around with a 20 cent piece of light equipment, and on this plane? Tragically, with tasks absorbing all four flight deck occupants, nobody was actually monitoring what the aircraft was doing. Previously, the autopilot had been engaged to hold the altitude of 2,000 feet, but that little bump on the control yoke had changed the autopilot system to control wheel steering. In this mode, the autopilot would hold the aircraft in whatever attitude the pilot left it when he released the controls. Having bumped his yoke forward, Captain Loft had unwittingly placed his aircraft in a very gentle descent down towards the swamps below. In addition, an air traffic instruction to turn back towards the airfield would have gently steepened the descent. It only took four minutes from that bump of the stick for the flight to end. Ten seconds before impact, the engineer climbed up through the hatch and spotted the altimeter slowly winding down. Uh, we did something to the altitude, he asked. What? was the reply. We're still at 2,000, right? he asked. Loft exclaimed. Hey! What's happening here? Three seconds later, the aircraft impacted the surface of the Everglades and was destroyed. Ninety-four of the passengers died, but amazingly, sixty-seven survived. 
Five of the ten cabin crew lived, but on the flight deck all but the engineer Don Repo died. Out on the Everglades that night, Bud and Ray were frog-gigging from their airboat. Witnessing the crash, they rushed to rescue the survivors. Despite being burned on his face, arms and legs from the spilt fuel, Bud Marquis continued to ferry people in and out of the crash site that night and next day. Bud was awarded the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Foundation and the Airboat Hero Award. The surviving cabin crew were also lauded for their efforts to save their passengers despite their own injuries. The finding of the NTSB were that the flight crew failed to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of the flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. A very sad end to Captain Loft's long career. This crash is particularly well known for two reasons. The less laudable one is the widespread belief that the subsequent use of salvage parts from the crash that were incorporated into other aircraft led to spectral and ghostly apparitions being seen on those machines. There are a number of stories concerning the ghostly appearance of the dead captain, many of which were exploited in the books written by John Fuller and later by Rob and Sarah Elder, also by the movies made from those books. Particularly distasteful is the obvious distress that this unwarranted attention caused Captain Loss's widow and his children. The more laudable reason and lasting legacy that this crash left is that it is credited by the FAA as one of the precipitating accidents that led to the development and industry-wide adoption of flight crew resource management philosophies and training. This training undoubtedly increased aviation safety because it has led to crews adopting specific roles, particularly during abnormal procedures, such that one pilot is always monitoring and guiding the aircraft's flight path, whilst other duties are done by the remaining crew members. Something that, nowadays, we take as read, but a lesson that was written in the blood of others.